These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. We begin this show again. This is a re-recording of the first episode, but I'll save the introductions for the end. For now, it's enough to know that you've stumbled upon the Oldest Stories podcast, where I tell the history and myth of ancient Mesopotamia. This show will run all the way to the Persian conquests in the 500s BCE, but with episode one, we begin way back at the beginning. Not at the beginning of humanity, but at the very beginning of writing in ancient Sumer, with the cycle of royal epics, culminating in the famous epic of Gilgamesh. Now, these tales are truly ancient, dating back possibly as early as 2700 BCE, nearly 5,000 years ago, and have survived through unimaginable millennia as cuneiform writing on clay tablets. These earliest tales are fascinating, at least in my mind, because they reveal a deeply strange culture, but also at the same time characters who are recognizably human in the modern sense. We can at times imagine ourselves in the same circumstances, while at other times being astonished that anyone would think in quite the same way that these people are thinking. Ideas that we now take for granted have yet to be invented, both basic aspects of storytelling like narrative structure and more complex things like structured ideas of philosophy. But even without our modern mental toolkit, the Sumerians at the very dawn of writing are producing works at a level of complexity, cleverness, and subtlety that even modern writers often fall short of. These Sumerian royal epics tell the tale of Enmerkar, Lugalbanda, and Gilgamesh, the legendary second, third, and fifth kings of the city of Uruk. Now, some of you may wonder where Uruk is, but even though our story takes place in the distant past, you can still look at any modern map to find it. Because even 5,000 years later, this place name is still there, though slightly morphed, as the nation of Iraq. The city of Uruk itself is most of the way down the Euphrates River, one of two great rivers, the other being the Tigris, which run into the Persian Gulf through modern Iraq, which will dominate the landscape of our podcast as surely as the Nile dominates any tale of Egypt. The word Mesopotamia itself means between the rivers, and indeed we'll be spending quite a lot of time in the flat and arid plain that the Tigris and Euphrates passes through. Now, all three of our kings are descended directly from the gods, specifically the sun god Shamash, and are divine in their own right, at least in their own official propaganda. We'll get to the most famous of them, Gilgamesh, soon enough, but I want to stop first at his two prior kings to ease us back into both the oral storytelling tradition and to Sumerian culture. A much more thorough look at the prehistory and very earliest civilization in Mesopotamia is forthcoming as part of this project of re-recording the first episodes. But if we start with the oldest stories and get a sense of Sumer as a place and the Sumerians as a people, it's my hope that this will help contextualize the more historical narratives. Now, these stories come to us on clay tablets, but those tablets are not always a cohesive story. Even beyond the fact that large chunks are simply missing or illegible, destroyed by the passage of time, cuneiform was written mostly as notes, 
and I will be, as was tradition for storytellers, mostly working off these notes and employing my own poetic license to tell the story in the way it was meant to be told. And indeed, for this entire podcast, I have no compulsion against freely blending history and myth, mixing my own retellings with direct quotes from the sources. The point is, the stories that come out from them, which tell us some things that are true and about the times in which these people lived, but more importantly, they tell us quite clearly how they lived, how they thought, and how they wanted to be remembered. But enough prelude. The four-part cycle begins with Enmerkar and the Lord of Arata, one of the oldest written accounts of war between humans. On the fertile plain above the Euphrates River sat the wealthy farmland of Kulaba, and the gem of the land of Kulaba was the powerful city of Uruk. Here was a city of brick that stretched from earth to the heavens with the first monumental constructions, some of which predate even the Egyptian pyramids. But even before these mighty temples, before the first known representation of the human face, before commerce was invented by merchants, before mining could bring precious stones from the mountains, before countless men and slaves had gathered here, there sat the site of a holy temple to Ishtar. Now, at this time, Ishtar would have gone by the name Inanna, though I usually prefer the more common Akkadian names throughout this podcast just to keep it all consistent. And this holy temple was named the Aana, meaning House of Heaven. It was around this holiest of places that the city of Uruk arose over the passage of many years and through the favor of the gods. Now, there was another place, a place lost to time, the city of Arata in the southwest mountains of modern Iran. Some think it could have been much farther away, perhaps as far as modern Afghanistan or in the mountains of the modern Caucasus, but so far archaeology has yet to locate the site definitively. Here was a city blessed with gold and jewels and lapis lazuli, which literally just means blue rock. It's really not as impressive as the ancients make it out to be where holy places to Ishtar and the other Sumerian gods were constructed with remarkable artistry and beauty. But this wealth and beauty was spiritually empty, because when the lord of Arata crowned himself in Ishtar's name, he could not compare in the goddess's heart to the lord of Uruk. Because Arata did not build for Ishtar, but rather for his own vanity. Enter here Enmerkar, the second king of Uruk, son of the sun, that is to say, Shamash, also called Utu in the Sumerian period, god of justice, morality, and truth, who is the sun itself. Enmerkar calls to the goddess Ishtar, who might be his sister or his great aunt, or possibly both, this is just how mythology goes sometimes, and says, look over there, sister. Wouldn't it be great if the people of Arata used some of that mineral wealth to enrich the truly devout temples of Uruk instead of going towards their own vanity? I think we should permit the people of Arata to, you know, transport all of their gold and jewels and lapis lazuli down here. Then we should allow them to skillfully fashion an absurdly opulent temple and palace complex. This would be 
much better than the current use of serving the empty vanity of Lord Arata, because it would instead glorify me, the divine Enmerkar, as, as well as you, holy Ishtar. The people would marvel at the wealth I possess, and even my father Shamash, the sun itself, would witness the splendor and rejoice. Ishtar considered this proposition and smiled down at the earth from her palace way up in the heavens. That sounds like a fantastic idea. We could build a fantastic palace, and it would have nice breezeways to keep it cool in the daytime, and massive hallways that would impress all the illiterate morons who still live in cramped mud huts. It would be huge, like a shining bejeweled mountain. All you have to do is find a messenger, and have him tell Lord Arata that this is my will. And while we wait for the messenger to get back, we can sit here and draw up ever more elaborate plans for the monument. So Enmerkar calls out a messenger from his army, someone with good endurance and a good tongue, and leans close to the messenger and says, Listen now, I want you to head east. Go up the Zubi Mountains, then head back down the other side, past Susa and Anshan until you get to Arata. There I want you to walk into the palace of Lord Arata and tell him that he's going to gather up all his gold and ore and precious metals, then he's going to pack them all onto his donkeys and send them along with his laborers and craftsmen down to Uruk. And he's going to build me a massive ziggurat that will be the size of a mountain. And it will be a massive shining monument of divine power. And listen, I know what he's going to say. He's going to ask for me to pay the current market rate of these things. And you'll tell him that if he does not do this, I'm going to come over there, and I'm going to drive the people from his city like scattering birds. His market rate will be the dust of an utterly destroyed city. Tell him this too. Tell him that just in the same way as humanity is the predator over all the wolves and lions and snakes and other predators of the world, so too is Enmerkar the predator over humanity. Oh, and, and tell him this too, that once there was a time when all men shared the same language under the mightiest of gods and mightiest of kings, and they all labored to construct the most incredible monuments. Well, tell him those days of unity are coming again, and mountains of gold are going to be erected for Enmerkar's glory. Now, this last bit is almost certainly a reference to a Sumerian version of the myth that would reach the Bible as the Tower of Babel. But sadly, past this somewhat oblique reference, the details have been lost for comparison. Note, however, that the implication of the tower seems to be the opposite of the Hebrew interpretation, that of a golden age now lost, not that of a time of sin that the gods punished them for, something that we'll be seeing in future intersections of biblical and Mesopotamian myth. Anyway, the messenger went to the town of Arata, guided each morning by Enmerkar's father, Shamash the son. And he went into the king's palace after all the requisite showing off and boasting, since Bronze Age kings loved nothing more than swinging their dicks around. And he repeated Enmerkar's message as he had memorized it word for word. The clay tablet helpfully repeats the entire thing for us in case we forgot, but since it was literally the paragraph before this one, 
we can skip ahead to Lord Arata's response. Lord Arata looks at the messenger and says, Tell your king this. Tell him, who is it that Blessed Lady Ishtar has seen fit to endow with massive, hulking mineral reserves and thick, meaty veins of gold in his land? Who is it that gains Lady Ishtar's favor with his rock-hard gemstones and his long, deep, penetrating mines of lapis lazuli? Who is it that can please Lady Ishtar by his erection of huge, gem-studded monuments that push deep into the heavens? No, messenger. You let Lord Uruk know that his faith is flaccid and hollow, and that Arata is far too dominant to submit to Uruk. Now, the exact metaphors that Lord Arata used don't translate well, but I assure you, they were deeply, deeply inappropriate. The messenger replied, I feel a bit uncomfortable, O oh mighty lord, but I'm afraid I have to tell you that if you've emptied your bedchamber for Lady Ishtar, well, she resides as holy queen at the palace at Uruk. It's she herself who has said that Arata shall bend over and bow in submission. I heard it from her very lips in the majestic brick city of Uruk. Nowadays, we think of our gods as residing far away in some high heaven. Some say God will send down a spirit from time to time to work invisibly in our world, and some think of God as being even more hands-off than this, and that isn't to even start on the large number of people for whom God isn't even a part of their thinking at all nowadays. The ancient Mesopotamians were not like this. The gods were real for these people, and they are as present as the Holy Spirit in an evangelical tent revival. At this time, there was a statue of Ishtar deep within the great temple of Uruk, a statue that was bathed and clothed and fed, and which was believed to literally contain within it the goddess's soul. There may have also have been a woman who walked around, attending festivals and conducting rituals with the king, who was, in some religious or theological sense, the goddess herself. And for a normal citizen of Uruk, the fact that a god lived in his or her temple was as factual and, in a sense, banal as saying that my neighbor lives in his house. The literal physical indwelling of the patron goddess Ishtar in the city of Uruk is an argument so profoundly true and significant that it cannot be immediately answered. And when Arata heard this, he fell into a troubled silence, staring at his feet in search of an answer. Finally, he thought of something, crying out and bellowing his answer at the poor messenger. Listen here, you little prick. Ishtar made these mountains. They are impenetrable. You can march your pathetic armies into these mountains, and you will be snared by them like the talons of the Anzu bird, and the blood of my enemies will run down these bright mountains. We will weep for your dead, and offer them burial after you've been driven back. But if your king wants a contest, I will give him one. As the proverb says, the bull who ignores his rival cannot have his share of grain, but the bull that drives off his rival gets to eat for two. 
So come, Lord of Uruk, bring your five soldiers and face me. I was getting bored. But if his words are true and not merely arrogant bluster, then surely he can prove that he is more favored than Ishtar. He can load every donkey in his city with every net and pouch and fill them all with barley and send them here. Then Ishtar herself can come in her divine glory and announce that she has forsaken Arata for Uruk. If he does this, I will gladly acknowledge him as the favorite of the gods. Now, there being no Skype, Lord Arata forced the messenger to memorize the statement just as he had said it, down to the bellowing, and sent the messenger back to Uruk. The go-between apparently gave a pretty good performance, imitating perfectly Arata's bellowing in Enmakar's own hall, while the mighty king listened patiently. Finally, he turned to the advisor on the left and said, does Arata really understand the implications of this? For you, the listener, if this is a bit obscure, what Arata has proposed here, underneath all the bluster, is that King Enmerkar pay a fair price for the goods he is demanding. Arata has a surplus of stones and a deficit of food. Uruk has a surplus of food and a deficit of stones, a classic case where trade is possible between two nations. This is actually quite emblematic of ancient diplomacy, where exchanges were far more likely to be phrased as either gifts between two benevolent monarchs or as demands for tribute between two more aggressive ones. Equivalent mercantile exchanges were somehow considered beneath the dignity of royal persons for whatever reason. And so King Enmerkar went out the next morning and performed a sacred ritual, because nothing of any importance can be done without the sanction of the gods. He mixed the waters of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers into a bowl, and then did a bunch of magic with that water before finally opening the doors of the royal granary. He personally measured out the first cup of barley into the very first sack before snapping at his servants to go do the rest. The king's got more important things to do. And they loaded all the grain onto all the donkeys, and a massive convoy started walking through the mountains towards Arata. And at the head of the convoy, Enmerkar had sent his royal scepter that carried the power and blessing of the goddess Ishtar. Now, when the convoy arrived, it happened to be a poor harvest year for Arata, and everyone in town knew who had sent the grain, and had heard stories of Uruk being blessed by Ishtar. This is a great situation for people who wanted to eat, but a terrible situation for someone who wanted to keep being king of Arata. The messenger came up to him after a while and said that Enmerkar had kept his side of the deal, and so it was time for Arata to send a whole bunch of shiny rocks. But Arata still refuses, and complains that the royal scepter Enmakar sent is not ornate enough to convince him of its divinity, and he sends the messenger back. Enmakar looks at the returned scepter, and he says, you know, sure, I can do better than this. And so he takes a break from being king, or maybe just being king isn't all that much work, and he spends ten years carefully crafting the most ornate scepter that anyone has ever seen. 
He then hands it to the messenger and says, Messenger, I want you to deliver this message exactly as I'm saying it. And he proceeds to further bluster and declaim about the merits of this scepter and the blessings of Ishtar enjoyed by the king of Uruk, and it goes on and on and on and on. And so the messenger returned again to Arata, who took one look at the scepter and said, Well, I can't argue with this. This is a darn fine scepter. But everyone knows that scepters, uh, they're not really signs of divine favor. It's... It's the result of personal combat that shows who the gods truly favor. You, you have him send his champion here for a little battle, and I'll acknowledge the results of that. The actual speech was, as all of these have been, much longer and more flowery, with many unneeded praises of gods and kings. But still, the messenger was able to memorize it all and return to Uruk. Enmakar, who you would think would be a little tired of all the back and forth by now, was delighted by the proposal. I guess everyone likes a good deathmatch. He relayed a message to the messenger, first saying yes, he would love to send a champion. The king then began to boast about he, how he was blessed by all the gods, speaking of his own wealth and power in the very most elaborate of terms. He then discussed how thoroughly he planned on crushing the city of Arata, grinding the mountains themselves down to dust, and selling all the people into slavery, and doing all manner of great and kingly things. And when he was finished... He looked to the messenger and he said, You got all that? And the messenger hesitated for a moment. And he said, No. That was a bit long. And I've already memorized so many messages for you. I'm seriously running out of space here. Oh, you know, I want to do what I can for you. But I've been running back and forth and back and forth for years now. And the king, a giant among men, gently clapped his hand on the messenger's shoulder in familiarity, silencing and humbling him. Here, said King Enmakar, as he pulled out a clay tablet and a scraping tool. The entire court looked on, curious as to what the king could be doing. The throne room silent, except for the sound of clay being scraped out. Finally, he passed down the tablet to the messenger and said... This is called writing. The entire court was amazed, for no one had ever invented such a thing before, and the messenger exclaimed, Wow, this is amazing! The clay remembers the words instead of the mind, such that even in the absence of the speaker, or long after the death of the speaker, his words can still reach the ears of men. My king... You have discovered immortality of thought and surely ushered an unimaginable age of literary and cultural achievement. The king mumbled that it wasn't that great, it's just writing, but the, the messenger had already begun running, his body encumbered by clay, but his mind released to pursue higher thoughts. You see, this, you know, may or may not have been the actual tale of how writing was invented, but the important thing here is that this is being written down only a few hundred years after anything at all was ever written down. For these people, writing is a superpower. Do you want to talk to someone long distance? 
Do you want to hear from people who are long dead? Do you want to preserve your voice, your words, and your thoughts for 5,000 years and in the future so that some clown with a podcast can read it? Put these strange glyphs into a rock, and that rock will hold your thoughts far better than any human mind ever could. Put them into clay, and you can write down pretty much whatever you want in an economical, durable, and efficient manner. Seriously, these clay tablets are going to last a lot longer than any modern storage medium ever will. Paper books? Nah, those go fast. Hard drives, flash drives, CDs, floppy disks? Goodness, those are going to be gone by the time you and I are dead. But no, clay. Clay lasts a long time. And we ignore the fact that writing is essentially a form of telepathy that can transmit to distant times and places. But these people, who lived at the very dawn of writing, still mostly in an oral world, were keenly aware that a literate man could do things that normal mortals simply couldn't. And so the messenger reached Lord Arata and handed him the tablet. Even though writing had only just been invented, it seems that kings were naturally literate, and so he was able to both read the tablet and at the same time be astonished by the new invention of writing by King Enmerkar. At the same moment as Enmerkar's words were spoken via the clay tablet, the heavens split open and a precious rain falls onto the land of Arata, blessing it with abundant food ending the famine that had caused Lord Arata to even consider bending knee to Uruk. And he announced that the single combat would be taking place, since clearly the gods had blessed Arata. The champions met in a battle that was so thrilling that people were too busy watching to write it down on clay tablets. All we know of the battle is that the champion of Uruk wore a white turban and lion skins, and that the champion of Arata was defeated. Honestly, what probably happened was that the tops and bottoms of clay tablets are most likely to experience damage, and we're simply missing the end of this one, despite the otherwise impressive level of preservation in an almost 5,000-year-old piece of writing. But when we rejoin our tale in the next tablet, we find that Arata is still unsatisfied, and has sent a wizard down to Uruk to try and beat them. The wizard's first strategy was to go amongst the animals of Uruk and try to unionize them. He spoke to the cows and the goats and said, Look, you make all this butter and milk and cheese every day, but tell me, who gets to enjoy the fruits of all your efforts? The wizard is clearly expecting the animals to be resentful of the humans who take their products from them and to bemoan the difficulties of life. But instead, the animals of Uruk were rightly proud to say that their dairy was offered in sacrifice to the very gods themselves. The cow says, If you go to the temple of Nisaba, goddess who provides grain to the entire nation, and you look at a particular shrine with a very attractive onyx bull carved atop it, you'll see that every week my butter is right there, feeding the goddess. And the goat says, If you go to the shrine of Enlil, king of gods and lord of storms, that my cheese is right there in a particularly good place. The wizard is forced to admit that, you know, this, this does sound pretty good. And ultimately, 
The first known attempt at unionism is defeated by the high morale of the workers. Then the sorcerer began to do some actual magic. Sure, talking to animals probably counts as magic, but this is, this is the good stuff. He goes out of town and conjures all sorts of animals out of the Euphrates River to go wild in the city. But the wizards of Uruk had already figured out what he's doing. And as soon as he conjures an animal, the more powerful wizards of Uruk, blessed more highly by the gods, conjured the predator for that animal to eat the beast. The sorcerer of Arata was baffled by this until the wise woman of Uruk said to him, Can't you see that you're using the god's magic against the god's favorite city? This is never going to work out for you. And so the wizard couldn't help but pack his bags and go home. And with this defeat, Lord Arata was forced to acknowledge the superiority of Uruk over Arata. He sent a message saying just how deeply humble he was before the gods and how weak and inferior his own people were. And so King Enmerkar sends his own note that's only a little bit gloating, thanking the Lord Arata for finally seeing sense and asking that he deliver the requested mountains of gold and gems at his earliest convenience. And so we conclude the tale of King Enmerkar. We see that our great war story, one of the first in history, manages to get solved without any actual war. Hollywood wouldn't credit it nowadays, but in fact, one of the most popular royal tales from ancient Sumer was the tale of two kings engaging in diplomacy across hundreds of miles. It even ends on what seems like a positive note. Two nations are, after a great deal of bickering and multiple attempts to cheat, engaged in a model exchange, the sort which characterized the entire Near East even in the pre-literate period. We think of cities and great trade networks of mass production and clever negotiations as hallmarks of civilization, and to think this was all well in place well before writing was even invented is, for me, pretty neat. And Ricard may have lived at the very dawn of history, but he was no grunting caveman savage. We've seen him exercise political power here with skill and finesse. But why is it that Uruk is even in a position to request or demand anything from this city that may be hundreds of miles away across desolate mountains? We'll be looking more fully at the historical context of Mesopotamia and the city of Uruk in an upcoming episode, but for now it's enough to know that Uruk is already massive. Like, the world in 3000 BC has never seen a city quite like it. Sometime in the third millennium, its population will balloon to somewhere between 50,000 and 80,000 people. And that doesn't include the wave after wave of settlers that it's sending out on a regular basis to spread Sumerian culture and found cities in distant places. This, this by the way, likely includes Arata itself, though calling it a colony doesn't mean we should assume that it's ever been formally politically dominated by the city of Uruk. However, it's through these colonies and the trade networks that developed between them and the unaffiliated foreigners around the Near East, that Sumer was able to create the complex economy, political structures, and in turn, the cultural achievements to make this the first cradle of civilization. But all that points us 
at the end of King Enmerkar's portion of the Sumerian royal epics, and thus at the end of today's episode. But before we leave, I want to introduce myself real briefly and introduce the show a little bit better. This is the Oldest Stories podcast, available on any podcast player that you might like and on YouTube. And in the coming episodes, we'll be looking at the history and myth of ancient Mesopotamia, hopefully running through all the major independent Mesopotamian powers and cultures until King Nabonidus of Babylon falls to the Persians in 539 BCE, ending native rule over Mesopotamia and moving us from the ancient to the classical period of history. This is, as you can imagine, a pretty broad span of times and places, and many locations and eras within this are extremely poorly documented. I mean, that's only natural given the antiquity. And so, I'll not just be doing a straight linear history of kings and empires, though overall I'll be going in chronological order. When at all possible, I want to explore who these people were, how they thought, how they lived, and one of the most powerful ways of doing that is through the stories they told each other. And so, for the next few episodes, we're going to be contextualizing the Sumerians as a people by looking at their gods and heroes. This is particularly important with the Sumerians because their gods and heroes will be inherited and remembered by later generations for the next 3,000 years. Also, as much as possible, I'll be setting aside time to look at what we can see of the people who were neither gods nor kings, the common folk of ancient history, though it'll be a while before there's enough to devote full episodes to the topic. As for me, I am your humble host. I'm not an academic historian, just an enthusiast with some free time and a microphone. I don't always get things right, but I am making an effort to do the best I can. You can contact the show with any feedback, questions, or comments on our Oldest Stories Facebook page, or by leaving a comment at the YouTube channel, or by leaving a comment anywhere on the website oldeststories.net. I'm also on Discord, link in the description at the bottom. Next episode, we continue the tale of the conflict between Uruk and Arata. So join us next time as we follow a young hero destined to become king as he goes on mighty adventures, gains superpowers, and turns the tide of a great conflict. Thank you for listening. <laughs>